Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I am so delighted today to be joined by author Bill McGee. He's the author of Attention All Passengers, which is a look into the airline industry, and more recently, the novel Half the Child. So we have quite the variety going on here. Bill, I'm so thrilled you're here. I am as well, Stephanie. Thanks very much. Oh, please. I'm delighted to have you. And uh, you come from this, from a writing background in journalism, and tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, sure. Um, a lot of people have uh, asked me why a journalist wrote a novel, but to be honest <laughs> with you, it's the opposite. I've always looked at myself as a novelist since wow. I was four years old and started writing my first, you know, fiction. You were four years old? Yeah, So yeah. Your, your stories that you would tell when you played with toys absolutely, were the good ones. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was the kid whose matchbox cars were lined up perfectly and, you know, uh, parallel parked, not, oh. not just throwing them around. Okay? I have no doubt yes, that you yes. parallel parked <laughs> Yes, <them>. yes. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I was a creative writing major in college. I've always been writing fiction. Uh, but um, after doing some other things, like working in the airline industry, I became a journalist. And I've been an aviation journalist for many years now, about 25 years. Uh, but uh, they're both passions of mine. Uh, nonfiction is a passion. Writing about airlines and airline safety is a passion. Uh, but very close to my heart is writing fiction. So. I love that, a crossover artist. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> I love that. Now, you worked in the airline industry before writing Attention All Passengers. What exactly yes. were you doing? I spent about seven years in the airlines. Uh, I was based in New York at both LaGuardia and Kennedy airports, but I also was based all over the world. I worked for some smaller airlines that sent me to six continents in about 40 countries. I was a young guy in my 20s and had no money and no credit cards, but I was in Djibouti and Bahrain and places hey, nice. I didn't know existed. Um, and it was a great education. And uh, then I worked for Pan Am before it shut uh, down. Oh, it Pan Am. Down. I remember yeah. Pan Am. I was very proud of that. That was probably the world's greatest airline, no question. And uh, so then uh, after that, I, I got into journalism. And so to be honest with you, uh, there aren't a lot of airline journalists who worked in the industry as I did. And I worked in, in flight operations. I okay. was, I'm licensed by the FAA as an aircraft dispatcher. So I was really in the nitty gritty, canceling flights and rescheduling and flight planning and all of that dealing with all the crises. So I have a very hands-on approach to these problems as a journalist and as a consumer advocate because uh, I've, been on, I've been inside the belly of the beast. I know where a lot of the bodies are buried. I know how airline people think. <laughs> and, so. and yet you still fly. Oh, yeah. I fly all the time. Well, sure. That, fly, and that's I why everywhere. I fly, because you fly. If you can yeah. fly, I can fly. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> there's a disclaimer in Attention All Passengers right at the front. 
that says that I, I don't have any stock in any airlines, I don't collect frequent flyer miles, I don't take free trips from airlines, I don't take free lunches or dinners from airlines. Uh, I look at it as my job to fly everyone. Uh, so whenever I take a trip, I'm trying to take a different airline than the last time just so I can stay current like and that. see see how you know see how things are and see well if things changed there in the last year or two you know right uh, so I have no no biases whatsoever I I am happy to bash any airline <laughs> that, uh, that does not do well by consumers I, I love have, that I have no biases whatsoever <laughs> I love that now attentional passengers I mean this is not a new book this is out a no. number of years and yes. yet it's still as relevant today as it was when it was written you're still being interviewed by you know, huge media operations about this. How is that? Yes, you're right. And it is unusual, as you know. Um, you know, the, the Attentional Pastures came out in 2012. It was published by HarperCollins. And, you know, after seven years, most nonfiction books are sort of just get after dusty. After seven minutes. Somehow. Yes, right, yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, but the thing that was different about Attentional Passengers was it wasn't so much about the airline industry in 2012 as it was a prognostication about where it was going. Okay. And I used the term trend lines. I identified almost every chapter has a trend line, something that was happening then that was going in the wrong direction from a consumer right. perspective. Uh, maybe a good perspective from, you know, if you're a Wall Street investor in the airlines, but not from consumers. So, for example, I wrote about seats getting tighter. Well, guess what? In the last seven years, they've gotten tighter. I wrote about the industry consolidating and mergers. Well, we've seen even more mergers. Right. And most important to me, um, I wrote about safety, and, uh, and, and a lot of the book is devoted to safety issues and uncovering a lot of the investigative work that I've done over many years, particularly with maintenance and maintenance outsourcing. And those trend lines uh, just continue to get worse. Right. Uh, so every airline in the United States now, uh, without exception, outsources much of what the industry calls heavy maintenance, the, 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 the big work. And in many cases, it's done in El Salvador and Brazil and China and Singapore and Mexico. And the Federal Aviation Administration, which is supposed to oversee it, is really doing a very poor job of overseeing it. So, you know, again, uh, obviously I'm biased, I'm the author, but it's a seven-year-old book, but in many ways it's more relevant now than it was seven years ago. It's, it's an unusual situation. Since it was written as a book kind of looking at the trends, what could potentially happen? Um, does it need to be revised at this point to follow the trends even further? Or are we just on that dark path going downhill still, so it's completely right? I, I've 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 thought about that. People have said to me, "Would you you know Would you be interested in in sort of doing a new introduction to it or something like that?" You right. Know? Um, you know, I'm I'm not trying to be snarky, but I mean, some it's of it would be I you know uh, I told you so. Still you know? here. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. You know, um, and and you know. To be very serious, I mean, there's there's no pleasure in saying I told you so, particularly on the safety issues, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, in the news in recent months, uh, we've all been hearing about the Boeing 737 MAX situation. Yes. And that the Federal Aviation Administration has um, the term, if you Google it, you'll see FAA, Boeing, the word will come up, coziness. Well, Attention All Passengers was writing about coziness between the FAA and the, and the airline industry, you know, many years ago. Right. Um, the fact is, these are th this is not a surprise for many of us. 
Um, it doesn't bring us any pleasure to say no. that you know, we, we, we called some of these shots. And I'll be very honest with you, it's not because I'm so brilliant. I'm not. It's just if you research these issues, you see where things were going. So and, the FAA didn't get sent a copy? Can I send them a copy now? Well, <laughs> I know they read it. I know that. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I have a background. I've spent many years writing for Consumer Reports uh, magazine, and they're they're well known for their fact-checking method methodology. I've been with them for about 19 years now. And so um, that fact-checking is sort of in my DNA now. Sure. And so I know that book was fact-checked very well because um, I didn't hear a peep out of the airline industry seven years ago. And trust really? me, they all read it. Uh, the FAA read it, the, 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 the airlines read it, and um, they may not have liked it, but no one, you know, no one said, well, this is wrong, you know, this is inaccurate. Right. Right. So, um, you know. So they read it, it, they didn't object, but it didn't change anything. Well, no, unfortunately. And, um, you know, y you raise a great point is that when, I'm sure this is true in many other fields, I'm, I'm sort of just immersed in of this. Of course. I don't, you know, I can't tell you You're about. You're my airline guy. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm Ralph Nader's airline guy to an extent. You wow. Know, he'll call me and say, well, what's happening with such Ralph and such? Ralph Nader calls you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you never know when, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I'm sure he calls other people for food and drug issues and, and health care and things like that. But on airlines, you know, I, I just, I, I'm immersed in this area. But just as, as a citizen, as an average American, as a voter, when I, you know, when I start reading news, I see the same trends in other areas. You right. know, I'm not an expert there. Right. But I, I, I see how the government oversees, you know, the safety with cars. And I see how they, you know, oversee the Food and Drug Administration. And... Wall Street, and I say, uh-huh, okay, I know this story. Yeah. It's a different tune, but I know it. I, yeah. You know, I know it very well. Um, Nader uses the term a captured agency. In other words, a federal agency that should be working for us, the right. citizens, the taxpayers, um, but in fact works for the industries, you know, mm. because of the lobbying money. There's no question this is all about money. Right. And so um, there's no question. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't pull any punches in this book. No, no, you the don't. The Federal Aviation Administration, you know, I make it clear, um, they are a captured agency because um, in many ways they're not working for us. They're not working for passengers, for, for taxpayers. They're working for the airlines. And in fact, uh, you know, there's a term that's used in the industry. It's, uh, it's not pretty, but it's, it's, it's been known for many years, that the FAA is called the Tombstone Agency. And by that, it means that um, the FAA may be aware of a problem, but until uh, a tragedy happens, and, and very often until there's a fatality, um, they don't act on it. And mm. we have seen this time and time again. We saw it just last year with Southwest Airlines when a woman was killed over Philadelphia with a, with a problem with an engine that, that oh, yes. uh, basically you know, uh, blew up in flight. It's called an uncontained engine failure. Um, and within three days, the FAA acted and said these engines have to be inspected. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is two years earlier, an identical incident happened, but no one was injured or killed. And the FAA dragged its feet and said to the airlines, well, how much time do you need to fix this? So that's why, you know, there's a, there's a term that's used that some of the regulations are written in blood. Um, it's very graphic, but it's, unfortunately, it's accurate. And now this year, you know, with all of the things that are happening with the Boeing 737 MAX, um, you know, some of us were just not at all surprised. Um, we're, you know, we're sorry about it. It's tragic, but we're not surprised. We can't say, well, we didn't see that coming. Wow. Yeah. 
as I embark upon a vacation. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I have, you know, people say that to me all the time. Look, I'm I mean, sure. No, let but me, you, let me be very clear. Uh, you know, commercial aviation is the safest form of travel. Yes. No, no, question. no, I hear that. No question. I mean, you compare it to cars, and it's not even close. Right. You could be here if you were the consumer advocate for, for autos. I can only imagine where this conversation right. would go. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, and, and, and this is an important but, is that that's only half the, the sentence. You know, yes, right. it's the safest. But it's not going to stay safe if we just rest on laurels, you know. A lot of times when you talk about these issues, like with the maintenance outsourcing, people in the industry will push back and say, well, look at the safety record. Well, that's not good enough, you know. Right. I mean, if you want, you can look at the safety record in the, in the Gulf of Mexico on, you know, on oil rigs. And the day before, you know, yep. the Deepwater Horizon, it was perfect. Well, the next day it wasn't. They saw that. They knew it was, you know, they knew it there was were problems. Happen. So those of us that are pointing out problems, the answer isn't, well, safety record speaks for itself. It doesn't speak for itself. That safety record was generated through years, generations of a lot of hardworking men and women. Right. And, and, and quite frankly, a lot of blood, a lot of deaths that we, you know, we learned from. Um, but the answer isn't to say, well, let's loosen the standards and let's send the work, you know, to El Salvador and not have the FAA oversee it and um, we'll use mechanics that are unlicensed and, and aren't going through background checks for security and aren't going through drug and alcohol screening and let's hope that the record stays the same. That's a bad formula. That's what the book is all about. Ouch. Yes. I, and I would say, and then you decided to go light and write a novel, but your, your novel is not no. light at all. <laughs> no. no, hopefully there's some, there's some It's not there's a romance, humor, it's but not it's a fantasy, no, it's, uh, no. it's quite the heavy novel, but it is a brilliant novel, and I, I'm so thankful that I had the chance to read it. In fact, my dad read your novel, wow, and my dad is not a reader. Yes, I know you told me that, Yes, so my dad great. read your novel, but Half the Child, and... Um, a semi-finalist in two major competitions. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I am thrilled to pieces over this book. Thank but tell you. us a little bit about why a novel, except that it's been a thing since you were four years sure. old. I didn't know that. Sure. Wow. Yeah, I've been writing fiction my whole life. And uh, Half the Child was something that was sort of, uh, I guess the good word is percolating. You know? Okay. You know, my laptop's a mess. You know, if you open up my laptop, there are a million files, and I have all kinds of things on there, and TV scripts and all kinds of things. But Half the Child um, is really a... a a, a work of love for me. It, yeah. It's very important to me. And um, I look at it, in fact, for a while there, I thought the, the subtitle might be Half the Child, colon, A Love Story. Uh, it's a love story, but it's a different type of love story. Yes. It's between a parent and a child. Yes. Between a, a young father who's about 34 years old when the novel starts and his even younger, his very young son. Uh, so it takes place over four consecutive summers. And Benjamin, the son, Ben is two and a half in the first summer, and then three and a half, four and a half, and five and a half. And during these four consecutive summers, uh, as the cover illustration sort of illustrates there, yes. uh, the family is broken, broken in two. And um, so a separation leads to a divorce, which leads to a very painful custody battle, and ultimately leads to an abduction of Ben by his mother. And um, I didn't want to write about the divorce per se. Obviously, it's driving the action. But I wanted to write about the father and son. So the mother is not a character who's on the page right. very much. Right. Um, in fact, she's not even named. Named, right. Um, it's, it's really all about a father and son and their love. Um, I made a decision in the early drafts that for once I wasn't going to write about aviation. <laughs> I, I, of course, they was lying to myself, right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, Michael, I needed to give him a job, and for a while I had him as a, as a salesman. He was a salesperson. And then I realized, you know what? I, these are the things I needed from his job. It needed to be a stressful job. Right. It needed to be a high-stakes job, life and death, hopefully. 
and it needed to be a job in which if he messed up, you could see that right away. So he's an air traffic controller at the <laughs> <Guardia> Airport. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, don't they always say to aspiring writers, write about what you know? Right. I mean, you hear and that all the time. I've, you know, I taught creative writing exactly. for about 10 years at Hofstra University. And, um, you know, I was also famous for, you know, this was one of my maxims when I was teaching. I would say to my students, every rule has a counter rule. So I would also say sometimes write what you don't know. Okay. okay. Historical novels wouldn't be written right. if we, you know, that's, how could you write about the Civil War? Well, that's very true. Right? Good point. Um, and, you know, also they say, you know, show, don't tell. And sometimes, I say, no, tell, don't show, right. you know. Um, to bring it into the, the, the television realm, um, the scene in Seinfeld in which uh, George tells us about, you know, being a marine biologist and going out and pulling the golf ball out of the way, you know, that wouldn't work unless it was told. We don't want to see that. Right. So, um, you know, every rule has a counter rule. But having said that, I knew, uh, you know, so I made Michael a, a, an air traffic controller at LaGuardia Airport. <laughs> the novel is, among other things, it's, uh, yes, it's a love story between a father and a son, but it's also, in a way, a love story to the borough of Queens, my home borough where mm -hmm. I grew up. Uh, so there are scenes at, uh, you know, at City Field. Even though I'm a Yankee fan, I had to make Michael a Mets fan, so that was, that was a hard... That Thank was, you for doing that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you um, very much. You're, you know, a, you're a Queens boy and I'm, you're a Yankee fan? I grew up about a mile and a half from Shea Stadium. Uh, but I forgot to mention, I'm also a contrarian, right? So every kid yeah. on my block when I was a kid was into Tom Seaver and Mets hats, and I said, well, I'm rooting for the Yankees. I'm going to root for the underdogs, the Yankees. Oh. I didn't know they were an underdog. They were the underdogs, no. Yeah, when I was six, I thought, oh, nobody likes the Yankees. Um, so... So yeah, so uh, many of the scenes in Half the Child take place all over Queens. All the, the, the courtroom drama and the custody stuff takes place in Jamaica. And uh, of course he works at LaGuardia and you know, Donovan's Pub in Woodside. Oh gosh, been there. Know? So yeah. uh, uh, again, a bit of a love letter to Queens. That's you know? nice. And, uh, but, but really uh, a love letter from a father's perspective. And uh, you know, we've talked about this uh, in the past and the fact is that um, you know, it's very hard to publish a novel. Oh gosh, yes. From a male perspective, uh, from particularly from a father's perspective, very hard. And I'm thrilled that you did it because I think that fathers are expected. You know, they're shortchanged when it comes to the parent-child relationship. So much is written about the mother's perspective. Let's get that dad involved. Yes, I yes. love that. In fact, I had an agent who was shopping half the child, and he did some research uh, into the industry. And he came back to me and said that the last time, uh, I'm, I'm assuming this is true, I, no one's told me that it isn't, uh, the last time a novel, there had been nonfiction written about it, right. but the last time a novel was published in the United States f about a custody situation from a father's perspective was Kramer versus Kramer in the 1970s, mm. which of course became the movie that we yes, all know yes. with Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman, but it was a novel first. Um, we're talking about 45 years or so, okay? Right. So um, that's crazy because uh, every day, there are so many, you know, tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands of fathers all across the country that are separated from their children uh, through divorce and through custody and through abduction and, uh, you know, loving, caring fathers. And so, you know, to me, uh, this is a novel that, that, that can speak to so many people. Right. And not only, and this is, I think, important, when there's a drama like this, a custody thing or an abduction, which is, you know, so painful. Oh, gosh all around. Obviously the child is at the center of it and, and the courts say that the child, you know, that everything is done in the best interest of the child. Well, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. Just as, you know, the FAA looking out for us is a lie. Right. It's a lie that, that, that the courts always put the children first. They don't. Um, but 
you know, at the same time, uh, there are there are so many loving fathers who are just sort of you know shoved aside, yes. and so it affects everyone. You know, it affects their parents, their grandparents, the uncles, aunts, cousins. It can, you know, a, a custody battle doesn't just affect the three people at the center, the child and the two parents. It can affect 25 or 30 people. Oh, at least. You know, and that's what uh, Half the Child addresses as well. Because Michael, you know, his, his life basically goes to hell, mm -hmm. you know, o almost In seemingly overnight. And right. every time he thinks things are going to get better, they get worse. And so eventually, you know, it affects his physical health, his mental health, his finances, his career, you know, he's sort of an air traffic controller's air traffic controller. He starts messing up at work. Mm. And there's a very dramatic scene it's that I don't want to get into. not good when air traffic controllers mess up at no. work. Especially at LaGuardia Airport, which oh. is one of the most challenging airports in the world uh, due to the congestion and the size and the, you know, the tight confines. And um, I, we won't give away, but there's a scene that takes place, a very dramatic event that takes place in the tower when he is, for the first time in his career, he's distracted and he messes up, right. you know. Because he's, you know, up until then he was always able to lock out whatever was going on in his life and you right. know, be in that tower and just focus. And suddenly the custody thing, you know, comes into the tower. Um, he winds up, you know, having to file for bankruptcy because the legal debts are, are just so incredible. It's another part of this. Yeah. This is an industry. This is about making money for lawyers and, and the court mm -hmm. system. And uh, he winds up, you know, basically homeless, sleeping on his brother's sofa. Uh, his life, you know, he, 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 he winds up, uh, you know, clinically depressed, uh, but he just refuses to give up fighting for Ben. And so, you know, I'll leave it at that. I won't say how it comes out, but he, you know, he just basically says, you know, I'll die before I give up fighting for him. I'm not walking away from him, and I'm not letting him be taken away from me. And so that's half the child. That's the struggle. That's amazing. And so I was told <laughs> by, you know, by people in the publishing industry, um, wrongly, I think, I, 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 I will say, that um, there wouldn't be interest um, for a book like this because myth number one, men don't read, men don't buy books. Myth number two, women are not interested in reading books from a man's perspective or a father's perspective. Now, this isn't a father who's a jerk, you know. Right. This is a loving, caring, devoted father who'll do anything for his child. So, you know, if you go online and look at the, you know, the, the, the reviews for Half the Child on Amazon or on Goodreads, you'll see that it's about 90% women that are, that are falling in love with this book. It's wonderful. You know, and, that is and, amazing. And they write me notes saying how much they love Michael, and he's fictional, but it, is he still single? <laughs> I love that. that they, you know? He's fictional, but is right, he still single? Right. So <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, uh, the fact is, as I say, these things affect so many people, and yes. you know, if you're a woman who has a brother or a son or an uncle or Absolutely. whoever, or or your new husband or your new boyfriend, you know, went through this, um, you're you're just as invested as you know as the father is, and you know, so uh, clearly there was a, a a niche for a novel in this day and age about a new type of father, right? You know, look, we all, you know, those of us who are of a certain age who grew up at a certain time had fathers, you know, many of us uh, that may not have been as involved as fathers are now right. and didn't know how to change diapers or this or that. My father did because I'm one of 11 kids, so it was sort of a necessity. Wow. I'm the youngest, yeah. But, um, you know, look, I mean, you know, we've all seen Mad Men and we know the Don Draper thing and, mm -hmm. you know, it's all about work and all of that and, and we get that. But that is such an, an old and tired myth in 2019. Right. I mean, it's no, just it's ridiculous. I mean, 
for every bad father, there are 20 devoted, loving, caring Absolutely. fathers. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so this idea that, you know, that, that, that parenthood is all about the mother and the father is off at work is, right. is absurd. I mean, it hasn't been that way for years. It wasn't that way when I was raising my son. Well, I thank you for shining a light on that. Now, the, the promotion for the book, interestingly, is often things like uh, book signings and such. But right. I think you're also getting called into groups, more like, uh, you know, your, your light that you've shown on it with your novel right. is actually furthering the cause. Are you getting... Yes, to? yes. So, you know... Uh, the, the folks who know me as an aviation safety advocate and a consumer advocate who testifies in Congress about safety and things like that on behalf of right. Consumer Reports, they're surprised to see me talking about custody. And the people that I've met yes. in the custody world are surprised to say, wait a minute, you talk about airline safety? Yeah. You, know? <laughs> um, you know, some of us have multiple lives. Absolutely. And, and I don't have to tell you how passionate I am about both of these topics. I know. They're, 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 they're both so close to my heart. Um, and, and children sort of weave through it because with, with the airlines, uh, for example, I've been a very outspoken advocate about the need to restrain infants on airplanes and not hold them as lap children because that's a very dangerous practice. People don't realize it. It's allowed. Why? Because the FAA allows it. Why? Right. Because the airlines, you know, would right. perhaps uh, not like to uh, see you have to buy an extra seat. So, um, so anyway... Uh, with, with the custody situation, um, yes, I've started uh, going out in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in New York, speaking to parental groups, uh, speaking about a very controversial topic of uh, parents being alienated in some cases, not just through a, a drama of abduction, as half the child has, but more subtle forms, like being uninvited to graduations and not seeing, you know, not mm. having visitation, things like that. Right, right. I want to be very clear before somebody jumps up and says, but, 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 they're a drug addict, but they're a violent, but no, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Let's no. be crystal clear. We're not talking about somebody who's physically abusive or, or on drugs or, you know, raging alcoholic or something like that and, you know, can't be trusted around, around a child. No, right. we're talking about issue. good, no. loving parents of both genders. And yes. I also want to make that clear, you know. And there's someone in my life very close to me, and she is going through uh, similar things, you know. So there goes the myth of, well, you know, the courts only, you know, look out for mothers and only abuse fathers. So right. there's, unfortunately, there's plenty of abuse to go around. So, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in the fall, I'll be in Philadelphia and uh, speaking at... Um, a parental alienation uh, study wow. group, a, a national, an international conference, in fact, and I'll be on a panel with a filmmaker who just made a documentary about this topic, and I'll be speaking about abduction and custody and 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 the struggles of trying to write a book about it, and not so much writing the book. That was the easy part of, of getting the word out about a book like this right. and getting it distributed and getting people to to learn about it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, so it's a novel that is actually you know, shining a huge light. It is, you know, and, and, and again, you know, I, I, when, when you teach creative writing for 10 years, your own words echo in your, in your ears and all the, all the advice you were very happy to give to your students <laughs> come back and haunt you, you know, and, and I always stressed, look, you know, fiction shouldn't be a polemic. It shouldn't be, you know, that you have a cause. It should be, you know, have you, have you developed interesting characters? Are you telling an interesting story? Do people care about them? Right. That's what I tried to do with Half the Child. But I'm not going to pretend it's not about a serious issue and an issue I'm, I'm, I feel strongly about. Absolutely. What I didn't do was say, well, okay, here's this position I want to take, and now I'll right, write a novel right. around it. I, you know, I created these two characters, and I just wanted to bring everybody into this world of how, you know, it, it may sound it may sound trite, but when you're a parent and a loving, caring parent, 
you really do. It, it is a two-way street. You really do learn from your child if you're open and you're and you're listening and you learn. And that's part of the process here. How Michael's world changes through this little kid, this two-year-old kid asking him questions. And this kid asks a lot of questions, <laughs> you know, and just constantly, well, Daddy, why that? Why this? You know, and him, well, I never thought about that. I don't mm -hmm. know, you know. Right. And uh, so, I, you know, hopefully it resonates with a lot of people. Fabulous. Well, I would ask you if there's another book on the horizon, but it sounds like you are too busy I am with these working two. on a few other things. Are you really? So I hope to be back soon and talk about some other things. Oh, well, we'll definitely have you back on the show if you've got some right. more stuff to do. I, but it, I can't even imagine where you're going to squeeze it all in. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's a seven-day-a-week uh, project. But, when you know, when you're working on things you love, you don't, you don't think of it in those terms. You're not looking at the clock, you know. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And uh, attention all passengers and half the Child are available on Amazon? Yes, in print and Kindle, and in both forms for both books. And Intentional Passengers, if you like, you can get audio as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you for furthering causes that are so important to all of us. Thanks so much for joining us for Once and Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing!